Dr. Peter Dale Scott is Professor Emeritus of English at the University of California, Berkeley. A former Canadian diplomat, Dr. Scott is a poet, writer, and investigative researcher. For the past two weeks in this program, we've been talking about his most current book, The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America. In our third and final installment today, we discuss the events that took place on that fateful day. We're going to talk about the day of the attack, 9-11. Um, there's been an awful lot of speculation about what the heck was going on, and you talk about a lot of the aspects of that without getting too speculative in the book. But you do focus in on Vice President Cheney, particularly in the question of, uh, was he in charge that day? Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm challenging the conclusion of the 9-11 Commission and its report, which said that this all happened because of chaos in Washington, nobody in control. I think that uh, Cheney was clearly in control. And I think, uh, just to make my own position clear, I'm, uh, I have no position on what hit the Pentagon or how Building 7 of the World Trade Center went down. Uh, all I know is there has been a cover-up of massive proportions, and the 9-11 Commission uh, became part of that cover-up. And just to give one example to prove that is that uh, we really don't know who the hijackers were because the names that the FBI came up with, and they had a list of names within an hour of the first attack, included people who then came forward in various parts of the world and said, I'm still here, that's me, that's my picture, I did train at that school, but I'm still alive. And so there was obviously cases of identity theft, and the FBI admitted it at the time. The head of the FBI said, we have to do further research to establish who they were. And when the commission was created, they were given questions by the people who had pushed for its creation. And one of their leading questions, obviously, was, who were these people? And the 9-11 report took the original list from the FBI that was delivered an hour after the attacks and assumed that that was the right list, even though the head of the FBI had admitted there were problems with it. So the cover-up covered them, and their treatment of Cheney is, to me, the most glaring part of the cover-up. Cheney gave two different conflicting accounts of when he got down into the bunker under the White House, and I believe that the first one that he gave five days later was the correct account. The, cha the commission went with a quite different conflicting account he gave uh, two months later and treated it as if that was the, the, the given truth and we know it. How do we know it? Because Cheney told us. But Cheney also told us something else. They didn't look into that. Of course, there's tremendous confusion over whether there was a shoot-down order and that they talk about that, but that's really it's hard to sort that out. Yes, a lot of people have uh, worried about whether Flight 93 was shot down. That's not really part of my book. What I want to look at is how did COG, continuity of government, get instituted on that day? And here you get uh, extreme wooliness uh, from the 9-11 Commission. And uh, I think that, it, in fact, the first command with planes had been given presumably by Cheney, but Cheney is certainly reinforcing it. According to Norman Mineta, who was there in the bunker, 
sometime around 927, which is before even the Pentagon has been hit, the failure of the commission to query Norman Mineta about this story and to deal with it in their report is uh, it's a symptom, but a very vital symptom of the fact that they are not dealing seriously with what happened. They tacitly, without explicitly saying this, they tacitly say it couldn't have happened because they say that Cheney probably came to the bunker around two minutes to ten, which is more than half an hour after what Norman Mineta was talking about. But here again, they're relying on a, a story that emerged very belatedly. Uh, the, the, the Norman Mineta story was revamped not once but twice, there, so that there are in all three versions of Vice President Cheney responding to a plane approaching the White House or approaching Washington. The most credible version is Mineta's because it's seven minutes or so before the Pentagon is hit. But then there was another version that made it known, not uh, that would have been Flight 77. No, 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 not that flight, Flight 93, and put it a few minutes after. But the 9-11 Commission doesn't mention that story. Again, they tacitly reject it. They like the story that everything Mineta talked about did happen, but it happened about quarter after 10. The most obvious problem with this story is there are no more planes at this point. The, uh, the planes have all been ordered down. There are no more planes approaching Washington. But they reprint, deadpan, a story based on an account from, guess who, Lynn Cheney, Cheney's wife, that has a plane approaching straight into Washington at 10.15 when there was no such plane. And the lame excuse of the or explanation of the 9-11 Commission report is that it was a radar projection of a plane that had actually gone down 15 minutes earlier. All I say about all this is what happened on that day, I don't know. None of us know. But Cheney is a central figure in this. He has never, ever been required to testify under oath. And my limited request is that Congress set up a hearing in which Cheney, for the first time, will tell us under oath when he got to the bunker and what was this order that he gave about a plane that was approaching Washington, because we don't know. And if I can quote from a question you raise here, too, in the book, noting it's disturbing that there's been no official report on the activities of this shadow government, the continuity of government issue, or even whether it's still activated. Be nice to know. Yes. If I could say one other thing about um, 9-11, that is intercepting planes used to happen all the time. And there were 67 of them in 10 months preceding June of 2001. The, The commission itself says that the failure to intercept has to be blamed on the impossible rules for interception that prevailed at that time. And then in the footnote, you discover that the impossible rules, uh, which meant you had to go to uh, national command, uh, either the president or the secretary of defense, uh, that was instituted on June the 1st, 2001. So a, a reasonable commission would have tried to find out why they were instituted, who instituted it, and uh, Mike Rupert, who did a lot of work in this area, spoke to a lot of people in NORAD and elsewhere, was convinced that it came out of a task force that uh, clearly was appointed by uh, Bush 
on May 1st of 2001, and lo and behold, who was the head of the task force? Vice President Cheney. Who were the people advising him? FEMA. FEMA, the people who had been advising all the COG planning all through the 1980s. So these were people getting back together, and uh, one month later we get this rule, which to all the people I've talked to, I have talked to people who are involved with watching airplanes, and uh, FAA itself said that it was normal. They're the source for saying there had been this, this many interceptions. So why were there no interceptions on that day? Because of a new rule? Why was there a new rule? That we still need to find out, and that's one of the questions that should be put to Cheney when he's under oath. I've heard Michael Rupert speak. He raises a totally valid question. I think most people remember when that when that golfer Payne Stewart, their aircraft suffered a apparently decompression at altitude. Right. And they had scrambled fighters within minutes. We were actually getting contemporaneous reports over the news media. They've looked in the airplane, and they there, appear, there appears to be no activity. So, as it was happening. What used to be standard procedure, you, could, you would get a report from a jet scramble to intercept. Well, Doug, the first time I talked about this, I, I said what you just said, that they scrambled within minutes. I've been persuaded that it wasn't within minutes, that people misunderstood that when the plane crossed a time zone barrier, so it was within minutes, but it was now in central standard time. So no, it was an hour. But it, an hour was plenty of time to get planes up to deal with Flight 77 and Flight 93, particularly Flight 93, uh, and it didn't happen. So that the Payne-Stewart story, is, which is in my book, is in fact an important story. Well, it's always good to have a correct uh, diagnosis before you attempt to fix things, and I think your book certainly outlines the true state of affairs uh, in, in America and the world. But um, in your conclusions, you do find some, some room for optimism out of all this. Um, possible optimism. Possible optimism. <laughs> all right, no, let me be optimistic. I think having the Internet is a fantastic new... It's, it's a new asset for the government and control, and it's also a new asset for the people to know what's really going on. You know, in the Vietnam War, the only way you could find out what was happening in Vietnam was to go to a rally and hear people tell you the things that weren't in the newspapers. Now the things that aren't in the newspapers are all over the Internet, with a lot of garbage, of course, but if you've got your wits about you, you sort out the truth from the garbage and you have an idea of what's going on. So if we continue to have a free internet in this country, we can never have tyranny. The internet is like the canary in the coal mine. If they take away freedom of the internet, then it's time to really worry that things are going to clamp down. As long as we have the ability to reach people through the internet, it's, it's absolutely premature to be talking about fascism or anything like that because uh, we have in this country today assets for communications between people which didn't exist in the old days. And I profoundly believe that the way the world can be made a better world and America can go back to being a better America it will have to come from the people. We cannot sit back and wait for Congress to do it. We cannot sit back and wait for the government to come up with a, with a more democratic version of itself. It will come from pressure from the people, and the Internet will be the tool. If I can quote your own words from your conclusion, you noted that tyrannical oppression from above, no matter how invincible it may outwardly appear, is vulnerable to organized nonviolent resistance when it is grounded in a sufficiently broad social base. And the challenge will be 
to mobilize in this country the kind of broad social base that was successful in ousting the Soviet army from Poland when the, the right-wing church and the left-wing intellectuals and labor leaders were able to get together and forget that they disagreed about homosexuality, forget that they disagreed about abortion, and remember that they agreed on the importance of establishing democracy. That's what we have to fight for in this country. Dr. Peter Dale Scott, we thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Once again, the book is The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America. The must-read for anyone interested in what led up to the Al-Qaeda attacks on the United States in 2001. We think everyone should read this book. We plan to put all three parts of the interview back together in, in, in their entirety, which should be available on our website, radioparallax.com, as well as Dr. Scott's website, peterdalescott.org. Joining us now in the program is someone we've meant to bring to you for quite some time. He would be the host of the Planetary Society's weekly radio program, Planetary Radio. Matt Kaplan joins us from Southern California. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Matt. Thank you very much, Doug. It's a pleasure to be on another UC station. And we'll talk about that. We're hoping we can start a trend here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. You have nice plans. Um, how long have you been doing Planetary Radio? We are going on the fifth anniversary. Uh, actually, we're going to celebrate it with our show that will start airing November 26th. We've even got a fifth anniversary contest underway. Uh, but uh, it's been quite a run. doesn't seem like five years. We should refer people to the website here if they want to check it out, planetary.org slash radio. I think we'll get them there. That's right, or even just planetary.org. We're always on the homepage. And you guys, have, you've done some just fabulous interviews of late. I think I want to... I want to Start off by mentioning that we had Matthew Brzezinski on this program. We wrote that great book, uh, Red Moon Rising, about Sputnik. We hope we can get uh, Matt back on the show. And you had uh, your co-founder, Lou Friedman, in Moscow for that event. We sure did, uh, during the uh, anniversary of uh, Sputnik, the beginning of the space age. I was sorry to hear, listening to your report, that Dr. Friedman was, was talking about how they just weren't making as big a deal over there as, as they might have. And what a surprise. I mean, you'd think that... Uh, with uh, sort of Russian pride on the rise again, that they would have made a very big deal about this. But according to Lou, it was all uh, pretty muted, even in Moscow. I mean, there were some, some scientists who were still pretty uh, excited about this, but it just wasn't marked with the kind of pomp and circumstance he, uh, he was expecting. Uh, it sounded like the celebration here might have been as big or bigger, and it wasn't that huge here. Yeah, he was saying most interest he was getting was from, from the U.K., oddly enough. Oh, go, yeah, that's right. Go, yeah. go figure. Very true. He also had a thing in his book. I don't know. You know anything about this? The fact that when they, when they sent Laika up, the first dog, the dog actually didn't make it into space? No. I mean, you know, what I've heard, of course, what the, the, the official Soviet line for many years is that uh, they, the last little biscuit that came out of the machine feeding Laika uh, put Laika to sleep. That's the <laughs> euphemism. Yeah. The truth is that uh, apparently uh, the, uh, the ship overheated, 
and uh, Laika had a much less pleasant death. But I had always been told that they actually did have some telemetry and, uh, you know, that, that they knew that Laika was, uh, did make it into space. But who knows? The Soviets uh, made up all kinds of stuff about their, uh, about their achievements. Uh, they still had a lot of stuff they achieved that was pretty darn impressive, though. Well, we're going to bring, try and bring uh, Mr. Brzezinski back on. We'll, we'll, we'll put that question to him, and hopefully you guys can get him on Planetary Radio, too. It's a great suggestion, yeah. Is your flagship, as it were, uh, KUCI? <laughs> you might say that. You know, we, the first year or so, we were only on KUCI, uh, which is my alma mater. It's where I, uh, in large part, learned how to do radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just didn't make a real effort to uh, push the show out further. Uh, we did pick up a few stations early on just by word of mouth, people who found it on the Planetary Society website. But it wasn't really until we were a couple of years in that uh, that the show really uh, uh, took off. And, you know, now we're on something over 110 stations. I was quite impressed with your list. And, and, I, and I'm pleased to report, Matt, that uh, we've added KDVS to the list. And I am thrilled. <laughs> I mean, as I said, as an old UC radio person, and knowing the kind of reach that KDVS has up there and what you guys do in that community... Uh, that is really thrilling to us. Uh, we have much better coverage in Northern California than we do uh, in Southern California with, with you guys and Sacramento and KCHO and Chico and mm-hmm. uh, the station in Redding that I think they operate. We're, we we're do pretty well up there. Has UC Riverside added you in, or are they about to? I think they're about to. They may not have told us that it's already airing, but uh, I hope they will so that we can add them to our, uh, our uh, online list of affiliates. I'll put the question to them on Saturday for this conference we're going to have for the UC Radio Network, I, I hope. But, uh, but Matt, you actually were the co-manager at, at KUCI in your youth? I, I sure was. It was uh, about 80 years ago. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> my, uh, my partner in crime there was a fellow named John Timpain, uh, who is now the uh, editorial director of the Philadelphia Inquirer. So there's proof that you can come out of college radio and actually make something of yourself. <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, we just we had an absolute blast. KUCI was such uh, an amazing experience. Let's talk about some of your programs here. Uh, I've been looking at, looking at the list right now as we're speaking, and man, you've done some great stuff lately. Uh, the you. space elevator is something that has gone from the, sort of the realm of science fiction to something being seriously talked about. Uh, to tell us a little bit about this idea of how we're going to get into space without using rockets. I'll let you know on a secret there. Um, I, I, I'm pretty gentle when I'm talking to the space elevator folks. And, of course, they, they love to talk about, it's almost a cliche, about how, you know, we needed the material that's strong enough to build this, uh, what is it, roughly uh, almost 50,000-mile-long uh, ribbon or cable. And, and now we have it in carbon nanotubes. Yeah. And the truth is they're still having a lot of trouble figuring out how to hook up enough carbon nanotubes to you know, get beyond a few feet to say nothing of 50,000 miles. So um, we got a long ways to go. Now, if anybody ever pulls it off uh, and they figure out how to keep the darn thing stable... Uh, it's going to be absolutely amazing. I mean, you'll be talking about maybe not pennies, but not very much per pound to get people up in a low Earth orbit. And, you know, once you get up there, you've done most of the heavy lifting. Well, it's really, it really is very exciting stuff that, uh, you know, I, I hope I live long enough to see a space elevator. Me too. And, you know, uh, who knows, maybe one will be built somewhere else first. I mean, anybody who's read the Mars Trilogy by Kim Stanley Robinson... Uh, knows that uh, uh, he talks about building not just one but two on Mars, 
where uh, it ought to be a little bit easier, actually, just because it's a much smaller place. Hmm. And I suppose they could build it on the moon as well. I wouldn't see why not. I wonder, probably would make sense. You know, of course, escape velocity on the moon is going to be, I, I don't know if it would be a sixth. I'm not enough of a scientist, but with one-sixth of gravity, I assume it would be one-sixth. So, and no atmosphere. A lot cheaper to get yourself off the moon than it is from a place with atmosphere that's a lot bigger. But, uh, yeah, I don't see why it wouldn't work. People talk, of course, about rail guns, electromagnetic guns, to uh, get people off of the moon as well. That that goes all the way back to Robert Heinlein, and moon is a harsh mistress. I was just thinking the same thing, that uh, he, that's what he had in, in that great science, science fiction novel. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Boy, that was one we loved when I was at KUCI. Well, speaking of sci-fi, it looks like you guys recently honored uh, Ray Bradbury, who we were pleased to note has also been on this program. Oh, uh, we <laughs> every at least every year, maybe every couple of years, uh, we find some excuse to uh, honor Ray and get him back on. Um, the Planetary Society actually helped celebrate Ray's. I think it was his 83rd birthday back when uh, Earth came closer to Mars. This is a few years ago now, uh -huh. um, four years ago, I think, mm -hmm. back when Earth came closer to Mars than it had in tens of thousands of years. And, and, of course, we featured him on the radio show then and had lots of nice tributes. And He's just amazing. that We did have him on over the summer. Uh, you're probably talking about this time when uh, we went to the performance of, uh, of the play that was being done in Pasadena. Mm -hmm. And uh, he is just amazing. He is just incredible to, to watch and to listen to and... Uh, just a just a joy. And I guess I can't resist a plugging at this moment. If the listeners want to go back and check out our interview with Ray Bradbury, they can do that at radioparallax.com. Good idea. <laughs> uh, well, Matt, Mars, of course, featured prominently in Bradbury's writings, and um, you've done a lot of shows on this. I'm looking at your list here. Uh, you bet. Recent story about giant caves on Mars, and and, and also some, I guess there's a, there's a mission going out to Phobos right now. Well, we don't know. I mean, that's the current show, as a matter of fact, because we just had this um, seminar at the Planetary Society about Phobos, and uh, the mission is still a little speculative. It's a, it's a Russian mission, but it's very exciting because it would actually sort of rendezvous with Mars. You, uh, excuse me, Phobos. Phobos is so small, you don't really land on it. You just sort of sidle up next to it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is a sample return. I mean, it, if it works, it'll actually collect some stuff and, uh, and bring it back here. Uh, the only other successful sample return mission so far it was a Soviet mission uh, decades ago, uh, when about the time of Apollo 11, when they brought material back from the moon with a robotic spacecraft. hasn't been done since. And uh, from a from a planetary body, I should say, Stardust. We've got, we've got some comet comet specs. I That's guess. That's right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I had to catch myself. And then, of course, this is also the mission which the Planetary Society has proposed a little add-on, a little piggyback experiment for called Life, which would actually uh, help figure out uh, how well things can maybe live through the three years in space and lots of radiation. To get a little piece of Phobos and bring it back would be a heck of a lot easier than actually trying to land on Mars and blast back off the surface. You bet. That's the big advantage. I mean, people would love to do a sample return mission from Mars, but it's just incredibly complicated. I mean, they have some mission profiles that JPL talks about, but, but really nothing is, uh, nothing's been proposed so far. The big thing that will happen, I guess, is the Mars Science Laboratory, which is really a terrific geochemical laboratory uh, so, you know, if you can't bring Mars back here, send the lab to Mars is the, uh, is the idea, I guess. And 
it will be a souped-up version of the Mars exploration rovers that have been so successful, uh, quite a bit larger and quite a bit more powerful. I also want to plug uh, on, on Planetary Radio that uh, I guess it was Emily Lakdawalla was talking about some of those Martian uh, uh, meteorites we have here on Earth on one of your programs, and it was quite, quite, quite excellent. Thank you, uh, and she does a great job. She uh, is just amazing. I mean, the, other than what she does for the radio show, she does a lot of other stuff for the society, but her blog... Uh, which she adds entries to the blog almost every day. It has become just an incredible resource, uh, providing much more information than we can on the radio show. I mean, it's also at planetary.org, but uh, she's read by people in space exploration, people from JPL and the European Space Agency and the Japanese Agency. I mean, they look to her because her contacts are so good now. So it's uh, not just, uh, just fans of space, but the people who are actually doing it. Well, Matt, we're running out of time, I'm sorry to say, but we should maybe close by noting that uh, also assisting you has been Dr. Bruce Betts. We've had uh, Bruce on the show three times, and of course he's got some, some family up here in the area, so I know he likes, likes it when he can appear on KDVS. He is so thrilled that uh, Planetary Radio is going to be on KDVS, where, uh, where his family is going to be able to tune in and, and hear it, and uh, we have a great time doing uh, the What's Up segment every week. Doug, thank you so much for... Uh, uh, having me on, and uh, also for uh, uh, arranging, helping to arrange uh, for uh, Planetary Radio to be carried uh, by KDVS. Well, actually, the, the true credit goes to Jen uh, Jen Cow, our public affairs uh, director, but uh, I, I think I was certainly been saying for some years we ought to do it. So, Well, she needs to tell us what size T-shirt she wears so that we can uh, send a Planetary Radio T-shirt up to her and to you. I'll, I'll, I'll make an inquiry. Matt, Matt Kaplan, so much for speaking with us. Hope this will not be your last appearance uh, on the show, and it certainly won't be your last appearance on the station. Me too, Doug. Thanks very much. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break. <laughs> 